Our sermon text comes from Acts 8, verses 4 through 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And when they believed, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were, both, both, I'm sorry, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard Samaria had received God, to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they them I'm sorry, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the, on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be here and worship this morning. We thank you for giving us uh, this testimony, this record of what happened in Samaria 2,000 years ago. Lord, it's instructive for us, and it's a sign of your grace and mercy that you've chosen uh, to give that to us in your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be receptive to it this morning, that we would um, learn what you'd have us to learn, that we'd be changed where you'd have us to be changed. And importantly, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come down upon us. May the things that I say and speak be in line with uh, what you have revealed, your intentions here in your word. And I pray that the change that happens within us would be real because you've been here and worked among us. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. I will say, before I get going, um, I have preached a lot of places um, from a lot of things, but this is my first time ever, I think, to preach from a uh, repurposed cast iron skillet. Um, so 
This is uh, an exciting first this morning. Obviously, I'm kidding. I, you know, I thought of that a couple weeks ago. What was I supposed to do? Just not say it? Um, anyway, I'm exceptionally pleased and grateful to be able to restart our Acts series this morning. We, as you know, finished uh, part one some time ago. I was actually the last one to preach from uh, part one of Acts. And, uh, and now we're restarting here in uh, our second part, beginning um, in a very different uh, place than we left off, really. Um, and as we studied Acts through the first part, first part excuse me, I, I want to let you know that it was incredibly encouraging and incredibly enriching for me to be able to go through uh, these first uh, eight, or excuse me, seven chapters um, of Acts together. It renewed my faith in the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to work. Um, it actually it changed my whole outlook for uh, how I view um, our current ministry, our future ministry here at, at Trace Crossing. Uh, there's a temptation when you're doing ministry to just sit down and, you know, do a bit of formulaic uh, calculation, be like, all right, we've got uh, X number of staff members with, with blank gifting, we've got so many elders, a certain number of members, uh, a certain amount of, uh, of giving, and so this is the ministry that we can do when you add all that up. But Acts, as we see here, uh, it, it's changed the way I've prayed. And, and now I approach the Lord and said, well, Lord, we have this many members, we have this many elders, we have uh, this many staff members, we have this much money. Um, Lord, just as you did with the loaves and the fish, take what we do here, take the ministry that we're doing, and multiply it for the sake of Tupelo. And so, anyway, uh, all that to say, I, I'm so pleased to be able to continue with us in, in Acts, uh, in, in chapter 8, uh, this morning. So, where we left off, we left off in part 1 with the stoning of Stephen. And uh, that stoning of Stephen um, was a pretty somber, pretty serious moment in the church, but it is one that had been building in some way for some time, right? Because uh, Christ was, was crucified, he was buried, he was resurrected, and as a result of that, uh, the, the, he, he um, commissioned his disciples to go and to spread the good news of his, his death and his resurrection to all people. The Holy Spirit fell upon his disciples, and then they began to, uh, to, to preach the gospel um, to great effect and great power in Jerusalem. And uh, many, many people came to faith, but it, uh, tension built there, where the religious leaders continually opposed the apostles and the work that they were doing, the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel that was going forth. And as a result, it culminated, unfortunately, in violence with the stoning of Stephen, Actually, it elevated even more as then Saul begins uh, in the beginning of chapter 8, where we truly left off, uh, ravaging the church. The result of this is that the believers that were in Jerusalem, the believers that were suffering this persecution, were scattered. As we see in the first verse of our passage this morning, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Um, but even though uh, they, they experienced this persecution, the Lord turned it for good. Because even as they were scattered out of this city, um, they went about proclaiming the good news. And again, many people believed outside of Jerusalem. And the reason why we've divided uh, part one and part two here, um, beginning in verse four, I mean, in the middle of the chapter of all places, um, is because there's a definite change here. 
you remember Jesus' words in uh, Acts 1, the, the uh, commission that he gives to his disciples that were there. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and where? Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here we see the gospel advancing beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, and now to Samaria. It's, it's left the locality of Jerusalem, uh, the region of Judea, and now it is truly beginning to go forth to different people. So it is a big deal in this passage that we see the gospel coming here to the Samaritans. The ministry here to the Samaritans was significant. Um, basically, it was significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, Jewish people would have made up this early church. Jewish people, obviously, around Jerusalem, Judea, they saw the Samaritans uh, basically of a different race and religion than them. Uh, they considered them to be of a different race because even though they shared a lot of ancestry, right, they shared a lot of, of common um, history, uh, they, they could trace their lineage back to uh, Jacob, to um, the enslavement in Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness. Um, even with, with all of that, uh, their true divide came when, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel separated from the southern kingdom of Judah, and uh, their fates became a little bit different there. Uh, the people of, of the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, were separated and in exile by the Assyrians a couple hundred years before um, the people in Judah experienced the same thing. And so as they came back, uh, the people in that, that northern area, um, especially there, kind of in the middle section, began to intermarry with foreigners. And so the, the Jewish people there returning to Jerusalem uh, thought, wow, these guys are no longer, you know, Jews like us. They've intermarried with, with foreigners, and, and so they begin to see them as a, as a different, uh, as a, you know, different group, as essentially foreigners. I mean, even Jesus in Luke 17 uh, calls a Samaritan that he heals a foreigner. And uh, furthermore, they, they even took on a tone of a bit of a different religion, right? They were just so different in their worship that the, the Jews considered them to be of almost a different total stripe. I mean, the Samaritans erected a, uh, a place of worship to rival uh, the temple there in Jerusalem at a, a separate mountain there in Samaria. So, all that to say, um, these Samaritans were quite different than the Jewish people. As a result of that, um, unfortunately, there was a lot of hatred and enmity between them, right? I mean, if you've been in church for some time, you know that. You know, you hear the story of the Good Samaritan. That's the big, that's the big, uh, the big point there, is that a Samaritan who should hate this, this Jewish man um, instead shows mercy and kindness to him. Well, the enmity that they had could be really uh, summarized by Daryl Bach there. It's a quote that's in your notes if you'd like to read along with it. Um, they, the Samaritans, of course, were despised for being unfaithful and of mixed ancestry, and they were treated as defecting half-breeds. To eat with a Samaritan was said to be like eating pork. Their daughters were seen as unclean. They were accused of aborting fetuses. So the Jewish people greatly disliked the people of Samaria. And to be honest, when I see what uh, Philip is doing here. I, I don't know, like the text doesn't say this, so this is, you know, take a grain of salt here, total speculation. I could imagine that this may have been unpopular with a few of the people in the early church. You think, ah, Samaritans? Really? 
the Samaritans. You're, you're going to go take the gospel to the Samaritans. Well, and Philip fulfills the command of Jesus and does exactly that. He takes the gospel there to the Samaritans to great effect. Right? He goes and he's doing incredible ministry. The entire uh, city there, in, uh, the, you know, it's not a city named Samaria, a city in Samaria. We don't know which city it was. Anyway, all the people of that city, as it says in verse 6, they were with one accord paying attention to what was being said by Philip. And he was casting out uh, unclean spirits and, and he was healing those who were paralyzed or lame. Um, and so, as it says, there was much joy in that city. But Luke here singles out one quirky individual by the name of Simon. Simon, uh, we often call him uh, Simon the Magician. He's been called uh, a lot in church history uh, Simon Magus. Um, I think we go with Simon the Magician because we've kind of got two options as Mississippians. Like one, we could say Simon Magus, and that sounds a little bit pretentious. Or we can say Simon Magus, which just sounds really weird. So anyway, Simon the Magician. And if you want to know more about Simon, uh, I'm talking about Rabbit Trail. Uh, if you want to, uh, you could go, you could spend your entire afternoon, if you want, learning about uh, Simon. Because uh, some of the early church fathers actually accused him of being a uh, generator of heresy, right? Um, one church father even called him the father of uh, all heresy. Some people said that he originated Gnosticism. If you want to know more about that, ask James Underwood. He would love to, uh, he would love to thrill you with tales of Irenaeus and his uh, views about Simon the Magician. But I don't know about all that. We're going to take Simon as we find them in this passage today. And here's what we see about Simon. Number one, Simon was a magician by trade. So, as it says here, uh, he was a man who had previously practiced magic in the, in the city, and he had amazed the people of Samaria, and they paid attention to him. So he was someone who, who practiced magic for the people of Samaria. I don't know exactly what that magic looked like. Based on the way this is described, the people being amazed by him and just being stunned and paying attention to him and all that, I, I imagine him being kind of like whatever the ancient Near Eastern version of like the illusionist type guy is, you know, like pulling uh, like the handkerchief thing or like pulling flowers out of his hat or making everyone in the room think of elephant at the same time. Um, you know, that kind of guy. I imagine him having those kind of cheap, amazing tricks that were able to, uh, to stun people. But, you know, based on the way it's described, it could be that. Or, I mean, he could have been performing some kind of actual um, magic, of incantations, of, of doing some kind of uh, miracles. We have no clue exactly what he was doing. Um, but we do know that he was a magician by trade, which made him, as we'll see later, attracted to Philip and the miracles that he was performing. But so he was a magician by trade, but it also appears, verse 13, that he was converted, where it says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Honestly, the sincerity of Simon's conversion is debated, and I don't really know. I don't have a side here. I can't figure it out. Um, I've gone back and forth, because, um, you know, you see Peter rebuking him later in chapter 8, and you're like, I don't know. It kind of sounds like Peter didn't think he was a true believer, um, but anyway, uh, regardless, we're not going to solve that mystery this morning. 
I just want to point out that regardless, it appears that Simon did have several misconceptions about what it meant to follow Jesus, several misconceptions about what it meant to believe in the gospel and how that should change his life. And so that's my focus this morning. Um, that's right, we, we are just now finishing the introduction to the sermon. Um, my focus this morning is I want us to look at these misconceptions that Simon had. These misconceptions that led him astray, that, that led him uh, to this path where he ended up offering money to the apostles for the power to call down the Holy Spirit. Um, so, three misconceptions that we'll see this morning. Simon confused miracles for the message. Misconception number two, Simon confused human authority for divine authority. And misconception number three, Simon confused his glory for God's glory. I believe that these three misconceptions that Simon had were underlying the sins that he committed here. All right, so the first thing we see in uh, verses 9 through 13 is that Simon uh, confused miracles for the message. Let me read that again for uh, the sake of reminder for us all. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that's called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip... Uh, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So in the book of Acts, in the Gospels, really throughout uh, scriptures, but especially here in Acts, because that's the book we're in, we see that often miracles occur alongside a message. In fact, I only say often because, like, I'm, you know, I'm not good at, like, make, knowing every single bit of the entire book before I uh, speak to it, but as far as I know, a miracle always occurs alongside a message. And the miracle that occurs here, the, these miracles that Philip does, the, the miracles throughout the book of Acts are always meant to validate the message, right? I mean, think about, uh, think about um, the first sermon that I preached from Acts, where Peter and John healed a lame man. The message that accompanied, uh, that, accompanied that is that uh, because of the power of the gospel to heal this man and make him able to walk, um, the Lord is able to heal and to save your soul, right? Or, or think about how Jesus, um, in his first miracle in the book of Luke, where he casts out a demon, the emphasis there, incredibly, is not on the fact that a man uh, was, was rid of his demonic presence. The emphasis is that Christ has so much power and so much authority that he's able to even command the forces of hell, right? So miracles always accompany a message, and the miracles are always meant to validate the message. It appears, it appears based on the way that Simon acts through this whole thing, and in the way that uh, the way that he acts here, with his um, his focus on his miracles and his focus on Philip's miracles, it appears that he elevated the miracles above the message. He got things a bit mixed up. Instead of seeing these miracles as a validation of the ministry of Philip to proclaim the good news, he saw the good news as a prop to the miracles. Right? He got them flipped. 
So Philip came, um, and, and the, the Holy Spirit was working in him, and, and the paralyzed and the lame were healed, um, so that people would understand, okay, well, you see this man who could not walk and is now walking, right? The uh, implication there is the sickness of your soul, that the death inside of you can be healed, just as you see this, what's unseen in your heart can be restored. The miracles are meant to validate the message, but Simon gets that mixed up. He elevates the miracles over the message. And this appears to be about par for the course for Simon. I mean, as it says um, in, in verse 11, uh, it says that the people paid attention to Simon uh, because they were amazed with his magic. Well, the same word is used in verse 13 uh, with the way um, that it describes how Simon felt about Philip's miracles. It says that Philip was, or excuse me, that Simon was amazed with, with Philip's miracles. And it appears that there's supposed to be a, a corollary there by repeating that word. Um, and so even though um, Simon does believe in this message, it's hard to know to what extent, right? This is, again, why I, I go back and forth on the sincerity of uh, Simon's conversion here. Simon does believe, and to some degree, I have to think that he agreed with the message. And, you know, he's, wow, resurrection of a man, that is incredible. You know, that's, that's great. Um, could you do that miracle thing again? You know, again, emphasizing the miracles over the message means that Simon had his values mixed up. He had his priorities rearranged in a way that was unhealthy to him. And I think ultimately led to him uh, sinning here by offering the apostles money later. So as a way of point of application to this, uh, to seeing the way that Simon confused the miracles with the message, we have to guard ourselves against things that would distract us from the gospel message. Now, it may be hard, it may be hard for you to relate to Simon's fascination with miracles. I get it, right? You, you were at this church for a reason. We haven't healed a paralytic in months. Um, as, a joke for those of you who may be visiting. Um, we anyway. Uh, so um, you may not be fascinated with miracles in the same way uh, that Simon is, but it is very easy for us to become distracted from the message that's central to all we do. The message that Jesus has died, that He's been resurrected, and by repentance of our sins and belief in Him, we may be restored to eternal life. That's central. But it's really easy to. Uh, create idols for ourselves, right? Um, I mean, Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols, and that is a preacher cliche at this point for a reason, because it's true. We are exceptional at creating idols uh, that distract us from the main message of the gospel. And just like Simon, when we do that, when we elevate good things, right? When we elevate ministry that, that uh, proclaims the gospel, when we uh, elevate um, you know, worship or, or any other thing, these, these things that are close to the gospel, but not the gospel per se, we risk getting our priorities mixed up. And just like Simon, we risk working ourselves into a place of sin. We work, risk uh, working ourselves into um, bitterness, to iniquity as... Um, as uh, Peter accuses him of later. And so we must guard ourselves against those things that would distract us from the message of the gospel, even those things that are, you know, kind of close to the gospel, um, at least in our minds. So, misconception number one, Simon confused the miracles for the message. 
Misconception number two, Simon confused human authority for divine authority. Let's read verses 14 through 19 again together. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Uh, They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So before we go any further with this point, uh, I just want to like, almost like this is like an um, interruption to your regularly scheduled sermon kind of thing. Uh, I want to point out one thing here. Um, these apostles coming down uh, and, and, and laying their hands on people and then receiving the Holy Spirit is unusual to us, Right? Um, so basically what happened was these Sumerians, uh, Sumerians I, I swear, I, I don't want to say Samaritans unless I'm talking about the good Samaritan. Everything else is Sumerian, which I don't think is a word. Anyway, these Samaritans, they repented and they believed in Jesus for salvation. But uh, even though they were baptized, it, it appears they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, as you know, different than what we proclaim as a church, right? We proclaim a um, all-at-once salvation, right? That uh, we're justified, adopted, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit all at once at the point where we repent and believe in Jesus. So, what's going on here? Um, Well, if I went through the full answer, like everything, we would not just be here for the 12 o'clock bells, we'd probably be here for the 6 o'clock bells, so I'm not going to go through all of that. Um, I just want to point out one quick thing. Uh, this appears to be an unusual act by the Holy Spirit. This is not, this doesn't appear to be the pattern that happens through the rest of the book of Acts. I mean, even you go to the uh, conversion of the Gentiles a couple chapters later, and uh, they receive the Holy Spirit immediately. What appears to be happening here is that the Holy Spirit is validating the message that Philip had proclaimed so that, um, so that uh, there would not be a division in the church, right? That there wouldn't be a Samaritan church and a, and a Jewish church, but there would be one church, and that the same Holy Spirit that indwelt them would be indwelt by all. But if you want more information about that, uh, I do have a little bit of a commentary uh, that I've printed out. I printed out the shortest part that gets to the answer as quick as possible. You can grab that uh, on that welcome desk on your way out. So all that said, getting back to uh, Simon and his misconception here. Simon basically confused human authority for divine authority. Just as he had elevated uh, the miracles over the message, he elevated human authority over uh, divine authority and divine autonomy. Um, Basically, uh, Simon here um, made two errors regarding authority, two errors in the way that he understood authority to work, his authority and God's authority. Number one, Simon believed that the apostles controlled the Holy Spirit, that they were able to direct the Holy Spirit at will, right? Um, And I, you know, I've got to say, I understand this misconception, because if you had never seen this before, and these people came and they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit, you might get the impression, okay, well, these guys have some kind of supernatural power 
to give the Holy Spirit. Nonetheless, even though I, I would probably make them, or I could make the same mistake, depending on, you know, what had been taught while the, the apostles did this, is a misconception nonetheless. It's a misunderstanding about uh, human authority and divine authority. Simon was under the impression that if, if the apostles just did the right thing, if they, they laid their hands on them, they said the right prayer, that these people would receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is just simply not true. We believe that the Holy Spirit is fully divine, that he is God himself. And just as uh, the Father and the Son, he is sovereign and he is autonomous. He's not, uh, he's not when, when these guys lay their hands and they pray, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, well got to act now and uh, as a result Simon making this misconception he thought that he would be able to control the Holy Spirit be able to just in the same way that the apostles were just directing the Holy Spirit that he would be able to do the same thing well that's the first error he made but Simon also thought that he could manipulate the spirit which is really close to the same thing but Simon was under the impression for some reason uh, that he could uh, buy either the power to call the Holy Spirit or the office of the apostle. I'm not exactly sure. Regardless, um, Simon was under the impression that he could um, buy the right to do this. Again, misunderstanding the fact that the Holy Spirit is autonomous and he's not for sale. He cannot be bought. He cannot be sold. Um, and his actions are his own. All right, so point of application here as we see this confusion of human authority and divine authority, we should pray earnestly for the movement of the Spirit, right? So at home, when I do something stupid, um, I say, I tell Paige that I did a dumb. And Simon kind of did a dumb here um, by trying to offer these guys money for the Holy Spirit. And it's easy to look at that and just be like, Simon, come on, dude, like, have some more sense than that. Uh, have some, you know, just decency. But um, as Simon tries to manipulate the actions and the working of the Holy Spirit, we too can be really tempted to try to manipulate the action, the working, to, to activate the Spirit, so to speak, in a certain way. We believe that if we just we scratch all of the, the right itches, like if we do all the right things um, in a certain way, then the Holy Spirit will be obligated to act and to move um, because we've done the right things, right? Um, great things, uh, great things like, like expositional preaching, like, the, like, like praying for one another, that sort of thing. That is great, and those are great things, and the Spirit moves through those things. In fact, I've done both today. But... Um, we, we must dispose ourselves of the notion that just because we've done those things, the Holy Spirit's obligated to act. If we want real and true ministry, we can't just do the right things. We need the power of the Spirit. We are not the ones that cause the change in people's hearts. We want true, lasting, glorious, real ministry in Tupelo. We need the working of the Holy Spirit through us and in the people we minister to. And so, you may be wondering at this point, well, how may we have the power of the Holy Spirit, right? How, I mean, the, the apostles had it, the, the early church had it, what, how do we have that? Interestingly, Holy Spirit, power of the Holy Spirit, is not for sale, but it is available for free. Um, 
Jesus says this in Luke 11 as he's teaching his disciples praise. Luke 11, 5, if you want to turn there, it's a little bit longer. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, uh, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything uh, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we see um, in uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, to pray earnestly for the Spirit. I've been so encouraged by the energy and the initiative that you've shown as members over the past uh, over the past month or so. It has been incredible. I'm so grateful for that. I want us to continue that, and as we do, I want us to pray earnestly for the movement of the Spirit in our church and in our city. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the ministry that the Lord has called us to do, as we see throughout Acts. And so I, uh, it, it is my hope, my desire, that we will be people who pray earnestly, desperately for his presence and his empowering in our working. So, misconception one, Simon confused the miracles for the message. Misconception two, Simon confused human authority for divine authority. But the last misconception that we see here in this passage is that Simon confused his glory for God's glory. Let's jump back in in verse 20 as we see Peter's response to Simon's request. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. So, Peter here gets right to the heart of Simon's problem. Peter doesn't just wag his finger and say, don't you ever ask to uh, buy power of the Holy Spirit again, though he does tell him that. He doesn't just, you know, correct his theology, though he does appropriately correct it. Peter gets right to the heart matter, very pastorally, gets right to the heart matter that it calls Simon to do this. Bitterness. Bitterness that had come from his ego. I mean, you saw this coming, right? I mean, it's no coincidence that here in, in Acts, and as Luke writes about this, he uses the phrase, pay attention, again and again and again in these early verses of the, of the chapter. And uh, for example, in verse 6, it says that the whole city was paying attention to what was being said by Philip when he showed up. And then... Uh, Luke says prior to that in two places that before Philip came the people were paying attention to Simon 
And so it appears that as Simon came and as Simon had been, you know, practicing his cheap tricks, his magic, whatever uh, exactly that looked like, someone showed up with the real deal, right? Someone showed up with the actual power of God. They called him, uh, in verse 8, they called him, excuse me, verse 10, they they called him the power of God. That's called great. And someone showed up with the actual power of God, with people actually being healed and restored. And I imagine that Simon became jealous. His ego wasn't being stroked, right? He was no longer being, he was no longer the talk of the town. Now Philip had arrived and everyone was paying attention to him. And so I imagine that ate Simon up because here Peter correctly says, you're in the gall of bitterness. You're bitter about this, right? You were looking out for your glory and you're upset that you no longer have your glory. And now you're trying to manipulate the power of God for your glory. Worse than that, it seems that he may have misunderstood the purpose of the gospel. Maybe he thought that the whole purpose was to make him look glorious or to make him feel glorious, right? Maybe he thought that the whole power, uh, the, the whole point of the message of the gospel was to give him power to do miracles like he had uh, previously been doing in the city. Instead, Philip was coming proclaiming a message that you will be healed here because the Lord is redeeming you from your sin. He's making you, taking you from your idolatry into a worshiping people of God. And so Simon misunderstood. Simon confused his glory for God's glory. Simon was looking out for his own glory and his action here in chapter 8 of Acts. Instead, he's corrected and shown that, uh, that he is in the bitterness because he had misunderstood and that he was looking out for his own glory. So the application of this, obviously, is the gospel calls us out of self-absorption and bitterness and into glorying in the Lord. Just as Simon, we're often tempted, we're often tempted uh, to make ourselves seem glorious to others. Right? We even, uh, in, in some of our moments, we're honest uh, in our ministry in the church. Our, our intention and our, our desire is to appear glorious before others. We're seeking our own glory. But we have to remember that when we do that, when we give ourselves over to glory seeking, we're going to give ourselves over to bitterness, to pride, to sin. And as we do that, uh, we're going to continue to sin against one another. We're going to continue to sin in our own hearts. We'll be eaten up with envy and jealousy and bitterness. Instead, the gospel shows us something greater. The gospel shows us that it's not about us. And as it's not about us, it's about the Lord and his salvation that he's working in the world. He calls us into his mission. He calls us um, uh, to come with him in, in his, his global march through, uh, through all the world as the gospel comes to all people. And as such, we're reminded that it's not about our glory. It's not about our ability to, to perform miracles. It's not our, about our ability to amaze other people, but it's about the glory of the Lord and glorifying his name. All right, so there we see Simon's misconceptions. The conclusion here, conclusion to all of this is, I believe if Simon had been a little bit more aware, he would not have made the mistakes he did. I mean, he was obsessed with the lightning and the thunder of the miracles um, instead of the message 
Simon was um, Simon was given over to uh, to the authority, thought, thinking he that he could usurp God's authority. And Simon was, was a glory stealer, looking to steal the glory of the Lord. But if he had perhaps asked around a little more about this Jesus that he had come to know, that he had come to to follow, at least profess to. If Simon had perhaps looked inwardly a little more and, and looked to the Savior uh, that he was hearing about, perhaps this never would have happened. Because everything that Simon does, Christ does the opposite, right? As Simon here um, was running after all of these distractions, Christ was focused, was laser focused on the mission that he had been sent to accomplish. And whereas Simon was... Um, where Simon was, uh, was trying to usurp God's authority, Christ, even though he was God himself, submitted himself to the will of the Father, even to the point of death. And whereas Simon here um, was, was trying to, to steal God's glory, was trying to give money to, to be glorious among these people of Samaria, Christ gave his own life so that uh, others may be saved. If Simon had only focused on Christ, perhaps he would have never got himself in this mess. Perhaps we wouldn't be, you know, learning from his mistakes 2,000 years later. And all the same, if you want the example of faithfulness, if you want the example uh, of actual uh, virtue that we're, we're called to pursue, look no further than our Savior who has redeemed us from our sins look to Christ. And it's my prayer that as we look to Christ together, we will be more and more formed out of the selfishness that we see in Simon here and into the selflessness of Christ who has died for many.